Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. And welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Ogumbiyi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. As Donald Trump edges closer to securing the Republican nomination, there are growing worries about the Democrats' chances of being re-elected. Is the party stuck with Joe Biden? And on the life of Zvi Zamir, the former director of Mossad, Israel's intelligence agency, who oversaw the response to the murder of 11 of his compatriots at the 1972 Olympics in Munich. First up, though... No firm has been more central to China's property crisis than Evergrande. It is the world's most indebted real estate developer, with more than $300 billion in liabilities. Its troubles unnerved the whole population, prompting the rarest of events in China, protests. Yesterday, a judge in Hong Kong ordered Evergrande's liquidation. She said, enough is enough after the company failed to come up with a plan to restructure its debt. Most of the company's assets are in China, where the property market was already in turmoil. But this ruling could pit Hong Kong's courts against the Chinese government, which has been trying to restore public confidence in the industry. This is really kind of a a landmark ruling in this case that's dragged on for more than two years now. Don Wineland is our China business and finance editor. But looking at how this is playing out, I don't think this is going to be the end of Evergrande. Don, take us back a little bit. How did Evergrande get to this point? So in 2020, the Chinese government decided that it would put in some restrictions on how much debt property developers could take on. The the history of, of Chinese property development is really one of an ever-increasing pile of debt in order to finance land purchases and the building of homes. In 2021, those government rules really began to hit a couple developers, and one of them was Evergrande. Evergrande is this massive property company. It owns about 870 projects around China, and this is in big cities and small cities, you know, uh, nearly 300 different cities across China have Evergrande developments. So when the company began to show signs of, of trouble, that it could no longer pay its investors, this was really a warning sign for the Chinese property sector in general. And since then, things have only gotten worse. Evergrande eventually defaulted in late 2021. And since then, it's been working with its creditors to try to come up with a restructuring plan. 
Now, Don, we've discussed China's bad debt more broadly on the show before, but what was the impact of Evergrande's defaults in particular? Well, one part of this is the story of what it means for a massive company like this to just stop building. The default meant that Evergrande was short on capital. It could no longer uh, pay its investors. It could also no longer pay its contractors and its employees to continue building homes. So one part of the impact was freezing these property developments, many of which had already been paid for by the people that should go on to live in these homes. So this kind of had a ripple effect across the Chinese property sector. You know, if if you think you're going to buy a home and then it's not going to be built, you probably don't want to buy a home. When it comes to the creditors, this is a different group of people that Evergrande owes something to. These are mainly asset managers and hedge funds. Some of them are global. Some of them are based in Hong Kong. They're all offshore. They're outside of China. What happened after the default was these types of companies no longer wanted to invest in property developer debt. So this is another squeeze on the type of capital that Evergrande and all the other Chinese property developers would have access to. Why hasn't Evergrande been able to restructure its debt? The restructuring process at Evergrande could have been kind of a path forward for many of the developers that would go on to default afterwards, but it it hasn't been. Part of the problem is most of Evergrande's assets sit within mainland China. The bondholders sit in Hong Kong, and these are two different legal systems. Coming up with a plan that stretches across the China-Hong Kong border is very difficult, and There are political considerations in China. There are economic considerations that have really held back the creation of a robust restructuring plan that creditors would be able to accept. And since the default, things have gone from bad to worse. Evergrande has consistently missed deadlines to produce a restructuring plan. Creditors have asked for all sorts of crazy things. Um, at one point, they were going after the chairman, Hui Kaiyan. They were asking for him to put up $2 billion of his own money. Mr. Hui, since then, has been detained by Chinese authorities. Nobody really knows where he is. But yeah, these are just part of the problems that have led up to where we are today. So then what does the company's liquidation mean? The order to liquidate the company means that This process in Hong Kong has really come to an end. Hong Kong is a common law system. It has its own legal system separate from China. And, uh, you know, the creditors have been asking for action from Evergrande for a long time. So the liquidation order is kind of an end of that process, meaning that attempts to restructure and satisfy the bondholders, that's over. That has come to an end. Now, what it means for Evergrande and what it means for average people in China is it's kind of a big question mark because these creditors essentially want courts within mainland China to recognize this Hong Kong ruling. That's very difficult. These are two different legal systems. And to get a local court in a, you know, a small city in mainland China to recognize this and to say, okay, go ahead, liquidate the projects that Evergrande is working on so that we can pay these asset managers and hedge funds. That's a really tall order for a local Chinese court. It's probably not going to happen. So I really question whether the liquidation order can be carried out in mainland China where most of Evergrande's assets sit. Well, 
Is there any way out for Evergrande here? Is there any way that their debt can be restructured? I'm not sure if it's such a question of a way out for Evergrande itself. This company's assets have already been seized by local governments in China. Its chairman is uh, detained somewhere. It's really a question of who Evergrande owes money to or owes something to. Outside of China, it owes money to creditors, hedge funds, asset managers. Within China, it owes homes to a lot of people that have already paid for them. So this is really the problem that regulators face when they're looking at how to deal with this for the creditors themselves. Don, what does all this mean for China's broader property crisis? Potentially, it could have a huge impact. If courts within China began to liquidate Evergrande's property projects in order to pay off creditors, this could really hurt what China is trying to do right now, which is get homes completed and hand them over to the people that bought them. So if more companies that have defaulted went the same direction and you saw lots of liquidations of property developments within China, this could be disastrous for China's property sector. It could really hit confidence even harder after more than two years of buyer's confidence really fading. I don't think that is necessarily going to happen, and I I think the Chinese courts will probably not carry out liquidation orders. I think it's also worth asking what this means for Hong Kong, because Hong Kong is a place where Chinese companies come to meet with foreign investors, where people have felt safe for decades investing in Chinese companies instead of going into China to invest in them. This liquidation order shows the limitations of Hong Kong's legal environment and how really, you know, an order on a Chinese company from Hong Kong doesn't really mean a whole lot. So I I think this is just yet another problem for Hong Kong and its ability to protect investors who want to invest in China. Don, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Over the past weeks, the intelligence have been covering the Republican primaries and the race to become the party's presidential nominee. Emily Steinmark writes about America for The Economist. And after winning in New Hampshire, many now expect Donald Trump to be on the ballot for 2024, facing off against President Joe Biden. We made a lot of progress because of all of you. But there's more to do. So let's finish the job. But while Mr. Biden says he wants to stay on, recent polling shows a large minority of Democrats would prefer he didn't. And they're not without their reasons. There's not a Fortune 500 company in the world looking to hire a CEO in his 80s. So why would an 82-year-old Joe Biden 
be the right person for the most important job in the world. Because I've acquired a hell of a lot of wisdom. I know more than the vast majority of people. I'm more experienced than anybody. At 81 years old, Mr. Biden sets a new record each day as America's oldest president in office. At the start of a possible second term, he'll be 82. More than 55% of Americans disapprove of him, and polls today put him neck and neck with Mr. Trump, or slightly behind. A recent poll from Reuters even put Donald Trump six points ahead. That's not the most encouraging news for Democrats seeking another four years in the White House. But are they stuck with Mr. Biden? Mr. Biden won't be made the official candidate until he wins the support of a majority of delegates at his party's convention. Primary season runs from January until early June, and in August, Democratic delegates will gather in Chicago to cast votes on behalf of their state or territory. So Mr. Biden does not have the nomination in hand yet and could technically lose these contests. But he does have an almost insurmountable advantage. Joe Biden has given to America's working families. And I can tell you this, the president's doing a great job. And how do I know that? I just look at what he has delivered. I look at 35... Under President Biden, under Democratic leadership, the country is on the right track. The president has the campaigning machinery of the Democratic National Committee behind him and the support of virtually every senior figure in the party. That showed in the first primary in New Hampshire. Well, President Joe Biden won by the biggest margin in the New Hampshire primary last night with 66% of the vote to his challengers, 20%. Joe Biden's 46%. Mr. Biden wasn't on the ballot because the DNC has decided that South Carolina should be the first primary. But despite this, he still won the state through a large-scale write-in campaign organized by his allies. Mr. Biden has history on his side too. Parties almost always renominate their incumbent president without difficulty. There have been times when they haven't. Both Lyndon Johnson and Harry Truman stood aside in the face of strong primary challenges. And in Lyndon Johnson's case, part of the reason he dropped out was because he was worried he would not survive a second term. But Mr. Biden benefits from the absence of any viable competition. It's democracy that rules here. It's the voters that rule. At the end of the day, it's what voters have to say. The only Democrats running against him are Marianne Williamson, an author of self-help books. Our country's in crisis. The world is in crisis. It's time for a new generation to take the reins and to lead. Uh, I wouldn't be doing this. And Dean Phillips, a little-known distilling millionaire and Democratic congressman from Minnesota. Both barely register in the polls. Let's start with the women of America. What they are telling me in state after state is that they are concerned about the future of our country. Um, many of us... Are- Kamala Harris, as vice president, suffers from even worse approval ratings than Mr. Biden. In fact, two-thirds of Democrats who say the president should not run again have no idea who should replace him. The other third think Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, is a good choice. But he is thought to be keeping his powder dry for a run in 2028. And I think we need to move past this notion that he's not going to run. President Biden is going to run uh, and looking forward to getting him reelected. We're gearing up for the campaign. We're looking forward to it. Even if a strong contender decides to enter the race against Mr. Biden, they would already be behind. Deadlines to enter important primaries in many states have already passed. And with each week, more close theirs. Late candidates miss both the opportunity to win delegates in those states 
and the important fundraising and media coverage potential that comes with early momentum. I've never been more optimistic about America's future. We're on the cusp of major change. We're creating jobs again. Manufacturing has come alive again. The only other way we could see a different Democratic candidate is if Mr. Biden drops out. But if he was going to do so, that announcement would likely have come last year. If he dropped out now, it would create a crisis in the Democratic Party. So the chances that he will do so, barring a serious health problem, are slim. So while Mr. Biden may not seem the best choice for the Democrats in 2024 to many, at this stage, his party has little room to maneuver. An internal battle so close to the election could severely weaken the party ahead of a probable contest against Donald Trump. And history has a cautionary tale for Democrats here, too. When Truman and Johnson withdrew their bits for renomination, they went on to lose the election. The Economist dedicates a section of its coverage to explaining the stories behind the headlines. If you liked this, you can find more by searching for Economist Explains. Zvizamir had always been a details man. Even when he was head of Mossad, an Israeli intelligence agency, his reports had been meticulous. Catherine Nixie is sitting in for our obituaries editor, Anne Rowe, this week. He recorded everything, success and failure alike. And the 1972 Olympics, when some of the Israeli team were taken hostage, offered so much failure and so many terrible details. The Munich Olympics were the biggest yet. 121 countries, 80,000 spectators in the main stadium alone, all there to see humanity be faster, higher, stronger. It was now 30 or so years since the 1936 Berlin Olympics, and these games were intended to show the world how Germany had changed. The militarization of the last games was all gone. Here, the guards all wore baby blue uniforms. None of them carried guns. There wasn't even any barbed wire at the top of the perimeter fence. The Palestinian Liberation Organization had sent a letter to the Olympic Committee asking to compete. But no one had even replied. So they had decided to take part in their own way. All through that long, hot July, the Palestinians had also therefore practiced for the Games. But they had practiced in the Libyan desert, athletes of assault, until they were ready, above all, for the perimeter fence. A little after 4am, on the morning of September the 5th, some drunk American athletes saw the Palestinians trying to climb over the fence with their bags of guns and had just helped them over. The Germans who covered the building with snipers made it clear today that in their negotiations with the Arabs, they never attempted to call their bluff and were convinced through the day that the guerrillas would carry out their threat to execute the Israelis, particularly after a bound prisoner was shown at a window. The Israeli team had relished the atmosphere there. They'd loved speaking to people from all countries. As one of them, Andre Spitzer, had joyfully told his wife, this is exactly what the games were all about. This is the point of the Olympic truce, nation talking to nation. 
Spitzer would be one of the last of the Israelis to be shot. Machine gunned by the Palestinians as he had sat, his hands tied, unable to move. The first Israeli hostage was killed more swiftly. By 4.10am, the Palestinians were in the Olympic camp. Shortly after 4.30am, they were in the Israeli apartments. Fluttering down on pieces of paper from the window, they had announced their demands. The release of 234 prisoners in Israeli jails, or one hostage would be killed every hour. By 5.30am, Golda Meir, the Prime Minister of Israel, was awake. By 11am, she had refused those demands. This was blackmail of the worst kind, she said. If she gave in, then no Israeli anywhere in the world will feel that his life is safe. The Israelis then offered to help by sending a team to rescue the hostages, but the Germans had in turn refused that. They had this under control. And that was when Mir had told him to go. Zamir must be there, she said, to see what the Germans did, to see how they rescue our team. So he had gone. The Germans hadn't been happy about it. His presence clearly bothered them. But Zamir was not a man to be easily put off. He had been an elite military commander and he was now head of Mossad. And he was an effective one. It was he who would warn Israel that the Yom Kippur War was about to begin. He could handle Olympic officials. And so he went and he watched. He watched as the Germans laid a complicated rescue plan and then prepared for it badly. The intention had been to pretend to allow the Palestinians to fly out, then ambush them on the plane. And so he watched as the Israeli hostages were led away to lay the trap. That was the detail that he never, ever forgot. To stand on German soil and watch Jews, shackled, being led away. It was an appalling sight. And he kept watching as first his belief in German efficiency died, and then, as all the hostages did. He watched as the helicopter exploded, as the hostages were machine-gunned, as the blood pooled, and finally, as silence fell. Munich changed everything. For Israel and for him. The time of watching was over. No longer, he said, would Israel sit idly by. They were going to get the people who did this. The Operation Wrath of God, as it would become known, had begun. And like the actual Wrath of God, it was swift and it was terrible. There was a shooting in Rome, a bomb in Paris, another bomb in Cyprus. The Operation Wrath of God, some said, was as terrible and at times as inaccurate as its name implied. Had those it killed really been terrorists? But for many others, it felt almost inevitable. For as Mir herself said, if there was one thing that the blood-drenched history of the Jews showed, it was that violence that began with the murder of Jews would end with the spread of violence and danger to all people in all nations. Catherine Nixie on Zaviz Amir, who has died aged 98.
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. Thanks as always for listening and we'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.